we honor them. Uh, Lord, I, th I thank you for the faith that uh, you put in those men. And I pray that the words I speak today would uh, speak faith to those who are here. Pray that you would open their ears to hear, their eyes to see your message for them out of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. You can also stand if you want, but hope you have comfortable shoes. Uh, I was going to start off the sermon with a dad joke, but, you know, you all are going to be getting enough dad jokes today. Uh, just look on social media, and you'll find a bevy of dad jokes that have already been posted today. So I'm not going to bore you with a, a dad joke. I'm just going to jump right in here to the sermon. So today's passage of Scripture has a story behind it. It's known as the Great Commission. But the words Great Commission aren't found in the Bible. Uh, actually, it was a name made popular by the British missionary Hudson Taylor in the 1870s. Taylor founded China Inland Mission. And uh, he gave this passage the name Great Commission. And it was instrumental in sending hundreds of missionaries to China in the late 19th and 20th centuries. It's a very powerful sending text for the church. Uh, Christian organizations and churches still use the term Great Commission in their vision and purpose statements today. Uh, so the term Great Commission is really a 19th century marketing tool. It was a catchy phrase to help people associate this passage of scripture to the work of overseas missions. Uh, the historical context to the Great Commission is found earlier in this chapter of Matthew, in the first verses. So let's take a look at that. In the first 10 verses of Matthew 28 are the story of Jesus' resurrection. The stone has been rolled away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary encounter an angel at the open tomb, and the angel gives them a message. They're to go and tell the disciples of Jesus that he has risen from the dead. And they're to go, and that the disciples are to go to Galilee, where Jesus will meet them. So these two women, they're running to tell the disciples, and they meet Jesus on the way. And he tells them, go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So it seems important that the disciples are to meet up with Jesus in Galilee. Verses 11 through 15 is the account of the guards who were at the tomb. A cover-up story was created. The guards were paid off. and The disciples were portrayed as grave robbers on the Sabbath. This story began to circulate among the Jews in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem. So it's in this setting of supernatural power and political intrigue that the disciples get this message to go to Galilee. That's where verse 16 picks up the story, and that's what we're going to look at today. For all intents and purposes, for all anybody knew, Jesus was dead. And you'd think that his ministry was over. But now, he's resurrected. He's still got one more thing to tell his disciples. He has some important final instructions for them. These instructions tell us that Jesus is still at work. But he's at work as a co-laborer with his disciples as they make disciples. This is God's strategy. But the bulk of modern teaching today on discipleship is about how we do it or how we're supposed to do it. 
Uh, Jesus, however, is the central character in this story. It's not us. He's the one constant among innumerable variables. So in this passage, we'll see at least five ways that Jesus is key to making disciples. The first key is that making disciples is directed by Jesus. Making disciples is directed by Jesus. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. There's eleven disciples instead of twelve, because Jesus Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, had already hung himself. These 11 men are the same men who were with Jesus for the better part of three years during his earthly ministry. They had been taught by Jesus. They had heard the parables. They had asked him questions. When one of them said, Lord, teach us to pray, they were taught by Jesus how to pray. That's the story of the Lord's Prayer that we have in the Gospels. They saw him every day. They noticed his habits, and they were included in many things that others were not included in. Galilee was where much of Jesus' ministry took place. So when Jesus told them to go to Galilee, he was telling them to go to a familiar place. The verse here is translated indicates a specific hill, go to the mountain. But it could also mean that Jesus directed them to go into the hills. We can't be definitive and say that such and such was the actual place where this meeting between Jesus and the disciples took place. But we can see some significance in the location nonetheless. The place where they met was a place where Jesus might have had informed them different things, might have had informal talks with them, uh, where they simply built their relationships, kind of a retreat. It was a spot that uh, they went to kind of get time with Jesus. If there was a Starbucks there, they probably went to Starbucks with Jesus. It was a familiar place. Uh, there wouldn't be any crowds there. They could talk to him directly and personally. And if it was at the top of the hill or the top of a mountain, they would be able to see if somebody was coming up towards them. So there was a sense of maybe safety and security in this place where Jesus was going to meet them. It had also been a place where Jesus had taught them. Galilee is where Jesus began his ministry, even though he was born in Bethlehem. He's known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was a backwater town during Jesus' day, probably had a couple hundred residents. But it's where he grew up. It's where he learned carpentry from his dad. It's where he would go down to the shore and see the fishermen. So there's an association here that Jesus is bringing them back to where things started. It's where they began their discipleship. Jesus is about to start something new. He's about to introduce a new aspect to his ministry. And he had done this before. In John 6, we read that Jesus talked about his body being bread and his blood being drink that leads to eternal life. And this was a hard thing for many to grasp. And some were offended, and some stopped following Jesus at this point. They just turned away and said, I, I don't know what this dude's all about. So Jesus would raise the bar every so often with hard sayings and new, new challenges. And those who couldn't accept it just walked away. So Jesus is getting ready to raise the bar again. So he brings them to a place where they heard him teach before, where he raised the bar before. And each time before, these men had accepted what Jesus said. What Jesus is planning to say is on the same level 
as his earlier teaching. This is not a substitution or an addendum or a footnote. It's a continuation or perhaps a culmination of everything that went before. So Jesus directs them here specifically for this purpose. I can relate a similar experience from my own life. I was 18, had been a Christian for about three years, but I was frustrated with my faith. Nobody was teaching me anything about my faith. Whatever I learned, I learned in church, and I wasn't a regular churchgoer. So in October 1974, I'm having a conversation with God. I'm just praying to him. And I say, Lord, I'm due to report to Army basic training in about a month. I feel like my faith is just holy fire insurance to keep me out of hell. And I'd like it to be more than that. So I don't know if you can do anything while I'm in the Army, but if you can, give me something practical to do with my faith. When you give God a question like that, he's liable to turn it around, turn it into a statement. Something like, well, since I can, I'll give you something practical to do with your faith. And that's what he did. It's as if the Lord wrote in the story of my life, okay, I'm directing you to Company A, U.S. Army Armor Center, Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I'll meet with you there in the hills. And we'll get practical. Maybe those weren't his exact words, but that's what's happened. I met some guys there who were in a Bible study, and they invited me to join them. Some guys were in my company, some were civilian workers, some were in different units there on post. But these guys, Mickey, Cecil, Charlie, Rob, Jim, they started to teach me some things about my faith, and my faith became practical. I didn't know it, but I was becoming a disciple of the Lord through these men. And if you know anything about the geography of Kentucky, it's all hills. So wherever I went in Kentucky, I was going to meet with the Lord in the hills. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe you want one. Jesus directed his disciples into the hills. He directed me into the hills. If you expect more from Jesus than just a personal relationship, he'll give you more. He'll direct you to the place where he can speak to you clearly and personally and deliberately about making disciples. But being directed by Jesus is just the beginning. Jesus will demand something of you because making disciples requires a response of submission to Jesus. Making disciples requires a response of submission. Verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. For some people, this verse creates a few problems. What is meant by worship? And doubting. How do they relate to each other in this sentence and in the larger picture that's being portrayed? Does the sum mean people other than the 11? Does the sum mean a few of those 11? Why would there be different responses? And is there some significance of which we should be aware of? The Greek verb translated here as worship and doubt contains some nuances depending on their context. And the Greek word proskuneo is the verb to worship. It can mean to kneel or to prostrate oneself, like bowing down before someone. It's the same word that's used in verse 9, where the women take hold of Jesus' feet and they worshiped him. They were actually bowing down at his feet. 
The Greek word edistasin is translated as doubted. It doesn't indicate intellectual belief, but hesitation. So this verse could reasonably be translated, and when they, <clears throat> when they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him, but some hesitated. How you translate it depends on your interpretation of who the sum in this verse is. If they is the 11, and some is some others who were there, then it stands to reason that the some had some doubts. If, so, uh, sort of like, wait a minute, this is hard to believe. And that's understandable. But if they and some are the 11, then what's really going on here? Well, if we look at other resurrection accounts in the gospel, we see that Jesus is not always immediately recognized. Luke 24, 16, two disciples had a long talk with Jesus as they were walking along a road, but they were prevented from recognizing him immediately. John 21, 4 through 14 is a story where Jesus isn't immediately recognized by the disciples because they were a long way from shore. So post-resurrection Jesus is not always immediately recognized. So this could be the reason for the hesitation. They just didn't recognize him. Another line of interpretation is that the 11 recognized Jesus, but they hesitated because they were unsure if it was appropriate to worship Jesus. And even if some doubted while others worshiped, there's nothing in the text that says all doubt was immediately removed. But perhaps there's a useful illustration from more recent times we can use. Does anyone here not remember where they were or what they were doing on 9-11? Unless you weren't born then, you probably do remember. I was with my sales manager, a guy named Jim King. And we were making sales calls when I was an insurance agent. We paid a visit to a little old lady to do her annual insurance review. And we might as well have been two blocks of granite in her living room. She was watching the TV, taking in the sight of the burning towers, and she kept saying, this is terrible. I can't believe this is happening. Intellectually, she knew what was happening. She saw the towers on fire. But emotionally, it was difficult to process. We didn't sell any life insurance that day. And I don't remember exactly what we did when we left her house. But I do remember a lot of people saying, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe that's why there was some hesitation. Jesus, resurrected, standing before them, Maybe it was just a bit much to process all at once. When I got to Fort Knox, I didn't immediately respond to the invitations to go to the Bible study. I'd forgotten about the prayer that I prayed in October, and here it was July. But I eventually got to the place where I responded to what Jesus was doing. I had to arrive at that place of submission to him. When Jesus directs you to a place where he wants you to be, where he wants to talk to you, he wants you to recognize him as Lord and Savior. He's willing to wait for you to get there. And he understands that you may be doubtful and hesitant. When a person is saved by grace, they automatically receive from the Lord a bunch of different things. They receive remission of sins. They become part of the body of Christ. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They become part of God's family. They receive an inheritance that's internal and unfading. They receive gifts of the Spirit, 
They have the mind of Christ. They become the apple of God's eye. They're inseparable from God's love. And there's a host of other things that happen to a person at the moment of salvation. They're also sanctified, which means set apart. And you're set apart for a purpose. Bowing before Jesus is an act of worship and recognizing his position as Lord and God is probably a little different for everybody. To one person, it may mean repenting of a persistent sin. To another one, it may mean changing an attitude. For me, it was just willing to go to a Bible study. Once you get to that place of submission, Jesus will start speaking to you about what he wants you to know about making disciples. He did that with the 11. And he continued this by, by making a statement about his authority because making disciples is authorized by Jesus. Making disciples is authorized by Jesus. Verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When I first read this passage, and I mean the very first time I remember reading this passage, I thought Jesus was simply emphasizing an established fact, something the disciples already knew. I mean, he's part of the triune God. Why wouldn't he have all authority? If this is well established throughout the Gospels, and especially in Matthew's Gospel, why is he making this statement now? Jesus begins by stating the extent of his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This was important for the disciples to hear because that wasn't their worldview. The ancient Near East was full of competing gods. Every nation had its own god. The Greeks and the Romans had their pantheon of gods. And even Caesar said that he was a god. The reality, though, was that all these gods with the little g are just frontmen. They're puppets for one spiritual entity, Satan. In the account of Jesus' temptation in Luke 4, 6 through 7, it's written, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to, to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan tells Jesus that authority over all the kingdoms of the world was delivered to him. He's telling Jesus he has the legal authority to hand over the world to him. If Jesus kneels before Satan and worships him. It's a formal statement of authority. Bowing down is a formal recognition of that authority. But how did Satan get this authority, and how was it delivered to him? Well, some theologians use Genesis 3 as the basis for forming an argument about this. Man received forbidden knowledge in the garden, and he received it from Satan. So in order to make this transfer of knowledge a legal and binding agreement, Satan had to receive something in return. And they argue that he received Adam's authority over creation. So in Ephesians 2.2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. In John 12.31, he's called the prince of this world. So Satan has some capability to operate in this world. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, seems to indicate this. 
Carson writes, therefore it is incautious, if not altogether wrong, to claim that the resurrection conferred on Jesus an authority comparably greater than what he enjoyed before his crucifixion. The truth is more subtle. It's not that anything he teaches or does during the days of his flesh is less authoritative than what he says and does now. Even during his ministry, his words, like God's, cannot pass away. And he, like God, forgives sin. It's not Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute, but rather the spheres in which he now exercises absolute authority are enlarged to include, include the heavens and the earth, that is, the universe. Jesus is saying that he has deed of ownership to the entire universe. Anyone who has bought real estate knows that before the deed is transferred, there's a title search. A title search is an investigation into the origin and validity of a title of property, usually undertaken by the buyer before the purchase. The title search will reveal if there are any claims on the property and what it will take to relieve those claims. A common finding in a title search is unpaid taxes or something owed by a previous owner. The title must be clear or there's no purchase. Jesus is saying that he did the title search on everything. Everything that Satan laid claim to, Satan claims humanity is in debt to him. He claims he has authority over the nations of the world and he claims a princely position. Jesus did a title search and he says that at the cost of his suffering and death, his perfect life and absolute innocence, he cleared the title and paid the asking price for human souls and anything else that Satan laid claim to. He holds complete and absolute deed of ownership to the universe. In addition, according to Carson, since he received his authority from the Father, the Father is exempt from the Son's authority, and the Son becomes the one through whom all of God's authority is mediated. There are no other competing legitimate powers. He possesses deed of ownership and has power to enforce the provisions of the deed. When the Lord directs you to that place where he wants to talk to you and when you submit to his lordship, you realize you have no claim on your life. Jesus has all authority to lay claim to your life and he lays out this claim in the next few verses. Verse 19 in the beginning of verse 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The thing we see in this passage is that making disciples is commanded by Jesus. Making disciples is commanded by Jesus. Jesus is ready now to raise the bar. What he said in verses 16 through 18 is done in preparation for this. Jesus tells the disciples what to do, where to do it, and how to do it. But there's three important verbs here that we need to pay attention to. Go, baptizing, and teaching. These verbs are subordinate to the main verb, make disciples. The command is not to go. The command is to make disciples. There's a lot of language to consider with the context of the Greek and how it could be understood. But to put these verses in a more familiar grammatical English form, they could be understood like this. You make disciples 
by going into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the imperative, the imperative verb is essential to the action of the message, and that is to make disciples. But now the question arises, who is supposed to make disciples? Consider that Jesus is speaking to the eleven who can be considered the original elder board of the church. They are the church leadership. So he is speaking to them as leaders. Is he speaking to them as leaders, as individuals, or as both? I personally believe he means both. The popular view of this verse is that individual Christians bear the responsibility of making disciples because he's speaking to 11 people. The strategy of making disciples is a means of global outreach becomes flexible, personal, and relational. This is the context in which I became discipled and how I thought about making disciples. It, wasn't done, it was done through small groups and personal relationships. It didn't require the involvement of the local church. But over the years as I've studied the scripture more closely, I've become more convinced that the local church is also commanded to make disciples. The local church has been established by God to be a corporate place of worship and community. The earliest Christians gathered together to listen to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to attend the breaking of bread and prayer. So the 11 who were assigned to make disciples were also the first church leaders, and the church was coming to them for knowledge, community, and intercession. It makes sense to me that the job of making disciples given here is also the primary mission of the church. I think we've kind of lost that idea, or at least given it a low priority. Part of that may be that there hasn't been a universal profile of what a disciple is or how disciples are supposed to be made. Over the centuries, the church has defined the canon of scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, doctrines of sin, the fall of man, and other important issues. But if you ask 100 people, or if you ask 100 pastors, what is a disciple? you'll get a hundred different answers. I don't think that's a bad thing because as I read on in this passage, I become confident that Jesus anticipated this. And here's why. First he says, go. The verb here, like baptizing and teaching, is a participle. Make disciples by going, by baptizing and by teaching. Some theologians argue that instead of a command to deliberately go someplace, it can instead mean in your going or as you go. I personally don't think of this as an either-or issue. It's more of a both-and issue. Whatever way you interpret it, you still must be active. You've got to be in motion. Making disciples isn't a stationary event. Next, there's the command to go and make disciples of all nations. The Greek words panta te ethne are used, meaning tribes, peoples, or nations. It's a command to make disciples of all ethnicities without any distinction. Jews and Gentiles are both eligible. They stand based on faith, not on heritage. So let's put ourselves in the place of these disciples. They're hearing Jesus' words, and maybe it takes a moment for the message to be fully received. They're Jews, and they know the Jewish culture. They're familiar with some of the Roman and Greek, Greek culture, but that's the extent of their global perspective. And Jesus knows this. He knows that there's a vast oriental culture that built a great wall 
that's in the fireworks that's making pasta. He knows all about the Germanic tribes, the Polynesian Islanders, the tribes of North, Central, and South America. He knows that the languages and cultures are different, and he is not worried a bit. The 11 are working from a Jewish perspective. They were discipled in the traditional rabbinic method, where a disciple attaches himself to an itinerant preacher and learns through relationship, experience, and knowledge transfer. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus knew that making disciples would be done differently in different places. He's not worried about spreading the rabbinic method. These new disciples are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Names were very important in Jewish and Near Eastern society. Your name was your identity. Today we pick out names for babies because they sound good. But back then, names had a specific meaning attached to the person. John the Baptist was the son of Zacharias. So it was traditional for the firstborn to be named after the father. Zacharias means remembered of God. John is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Johannan, which means gracious gift of God. So when an angel told Zacharias to name his son Johannan, it was significant. You can look at how the name Johannan was chosen and how people reacted to it back in Luke 1. I'll let you do that on your own. When two people marry, they're identified as one new family using the same last name. When a child is adopted, he's given the name of that family. It's part of a covenant relationship that says, what you have is mine and what I have is yours because we're identified as one family. Names identify a person as part of a family unit. Similarly, when a person is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's being identified as a member of God's family. He belongs, to the enti he belongs entirely to God. Jesus makes sure the disciples are baptized using all three names of the Trinity. Next, he says disciples are to be taught by obeying everything Jesus commanded. Teaching differs from learning. If you decide to learn something, you choose the topic, and you choose the method, and you choose how much you'll learn. You're taught by someone who purposefully determines the topic, the method, and the extent of the lesson. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I learned what I could about cartooning and thought that maybe when Charles Schultz finally retires, I could be the guy who starts drawing Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Or maybe I could be like one of those powerful and influential editorial cartoonists who worked at major metropolitan newspapers. I learned about Hugh Haney at the Louisville Courier Journal and Pat Oliphant at the Denver Post and Bill Malden at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. But when I was in art class, the art teacher wasn't trying to teach me about cartooning. He was teaching me about mosaics, watercolors, two-point perspective, and monochromatic palettes. He was teaching, but I wasn't learning. He wasn't teaching me cartooning. All he had to do was teach me cartooning. I would have learned a lot. So there's a qualification here. Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. The qualifier is, I think, that the disciple must want to learn to the point 
of verifiable obedience. It shows up in his life. It's not enough, not, it's not enough to know what Jesus commanded. Disciples do what Jesus commands. You know the last thing that Jesus commanded? Go make disciples. So to be a disciple who obeys all the commands of Jesus, you must make disciples. When I first joined the Bible study at Fort Knox, I just wanted to know Jesus. I wasn't interested in doing evangelism or leading Bible studies or helping some private first class memorize the Bible verses. It was just you and me, Lord, right? But as you get to know Jesus, as that personal relationship with the Lord broadens and then deepens, you realize that Jesus doesn't exist just for your benefit. He's not your guidance counselor, and he's not your crystal ball, and he's not your ATM. You are his. You are his ambassador. You are a light in a dark world. You are life among the dead. You are sight to the blind, healing to the sick, and comfort to the afflicted. Why? Because you are his. And he is all these things and more. God's desire is for you to be the agent who reproduces Jesus in the life of others. And because of this desire of the Lord, he makes an incredible promise. In the second part of verse 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says this because making disciples is a joint venture with Jesus. Making disciples is a joint venture with Jesus. Matthew finishes his gospel in the same way that he begins it. In Matthew 1.23, he says of Jesus, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here he ends by saying, he remains God with us here to the end of the age. Jesus isn't saying, I'll see you at the finish line. The Greek expression here is trans translated as always is only used in this passage, nowhere else, according to Carson. And it means the whole of every day. Jesus is saying, behold, I am with you the whole of every day to the end of the age. He's saying, I'll see you at the finish line because I'm running the race with you. In the common vernacular, he's with us every step of the way. He's saying this not only to the individual, but to the church. The church is to make disciples of all ethnicities because he is with the church the whole of every day. The church has the commission. Jesus is in partnership with the church until the commission is finished, until the consummation of history when all of history ends and the kingdom of God is revealed in finality and totality. Fathers are somewhat like that. They have sons or daughters and every dad, whether he's physically able to be present with his children or not, is for them, is with them, and loves them the whole of every day. I'm a bit biased when I say this, but I think fathers are or can be the ultimate disciple makers. I have two daughters, so I didn't take them to Little League, but I did take them to soccer games. I didn't show them how to score goals or how to block a kick, but I was with them at practice and at every game. I taught them how to mow along. We checked the yard to get rid of all the stuff that didn't need to be there, the cans, the rocks, wrappers that people left on the lawn. I showed them how to fill a gas tank and check the oil, and how to safely start the mower. At first, 
I was with them as they mowed, and then they were able to do it on their own. I took them to the local cemetery to learn how to drive. If you run over someone there, they're probably already dead. <laughs> After a while, I let them drive to the cemetery and back. Then we went to the highway, and then they went to driving school. I took them for their written tests and for their driving tests. I was gone a lot, too, because dads missed some things along the way due to work, other things, other responsibilities. But you know what? I did these things with my girls because my dad did these things with me. And after he died, my uncle stepped in. Jesus is very much like this. He is with us the whole of every day with us making disciples. He is never away. He never misses an event. And there's no need for anyone to stand in for him. You see, making disciples is too big for us to do on our own. It's not even our idea. It's Jesus' idea. A few chapters earlier in Matthew, Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answers that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says that on this rock, on Jesus' confession, Jesus will build his church. The way Jesus intends to build his church is by his disciples making disciples. There is no plan B. The church is supposed to be spiritually procreative. Spiritual reproduction is God's chosen plan. It's his plan for every living organism, and the church is an organism. It is the body of Christ, and it must reproduce after its own kind. Three things prevent reproduction. Immaturity, unwillingness, and sterility. Jesus won't use immature believers to make disciples. Disciples or Christians with a measure of spiritual maturity, make disciples. Jesus won't force a person to make disciples. Being unwilling is also being disobedient, and he won't use disobedient disciples. He also won't use a sterile Christian, one who is unable to pass on what he's taught. When someone helps you in your relationship with God, you're responsible for passing what you've learned along. What if the only prayer you know is the Lord's Prayer? That's what you're responsible for. You're only responsible for what you know. Well, what if you don't want to? Well, sorry, you don't get a free pass. Participation is the price of admission. What if you're unable? What if you're a leper? You know, lepers were separated out from society in Jesus' day. What if you're in prison? What if you're in sick? What if you're sick? Well, if you're a leper, pass it on to other lepers. If you're in prison, pass it on to the guards and other inmates. If you're sick, pass it on to your doctors and nurses. Imagine if Jesus had appeared to the 11 and said, guys, it's been great. I've got to go, but I'll be back. And then he ascended into heaven. What if he didn't say, make disciples? The question we must answer is this. Did he say that to me? Did he say that to my growth group? Did he say that to my church? I can tell you what I think, but that's, that's based on me being directed by the Lord to a certain place. It's based on my response to him. It's based on the authority I believe he has and based on what I believe to be the non-negotiables of the Christian life and based on his promise. But that's my conviction. 
you don't need my conviction. You need your own conviction. When you listen to where the Lord is directing you, the rest falls into place. Maybe you're already in that place and you're asking, okay, what's next? Maybe you're already growing as a disciple, but you're trying to make disciples on your own, in your own strength. Wherever you are in this process, Jesus promises he will be with you the whole of every day, and that means right now. You know where you stand based on these five verses in Matthew. If you're not sure, or maybe this is the first time you're deliberately considering the whole issue of making disciples, then take time this week and read and reread this portion of Scripture. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you. If you're willing and able to become a disciple who makes disciples, just tell that to the Lord, and he'll take care of all the details. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just say it's been great and ascended and someday you'll be back. Thank you for giving your church corporately and believers individually the commission to make disciples. Father, I pray that you would speak to us all, uh, grow us in the faith to make disciples, and thank you that you are with us the whole of every day in this great adventure. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.